Billy Ocean from 1986, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. I know, I just thought we needed the 80s today, that's all there is to it. It was part of the film The Jewel of the Nile, I'm not quite sure if I remember that. The video apparently was banned in the UK because it featured non-musician union members. And then Boyzone, well they did a cover and took it to number one in 1999. I know, it could be the 70s tomorrow. Do you remember the song, Ed? No, Ellie? I wasn't born in the yep. 80s, unfortunately. Oh, Ed, for goodness sake. Uh, yes, I do remember the song. And the film had Michael... Who's the guy married to Catherine Zeta-Jones? Michael Douglas. I think oh. it had Michael Douglas in it. And I want to say the woman out of Moonlighting. Do you have conversations like this, Susanna? You know, you I say, do. You know that woman? She's I do. Married I start a sentence. Yes. Who was in, yeah, okay. And then so I don't that, remember anything else, but I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with you 100% and I know and that we like to dance to it. The poster for the movie was they're on a vine and she's wrapped around him in what looks like a sheet. Mm, we might just I leave that there, Ellie. Oh, Thank okay. you. Right. <laughs> Welcome to Radio New Zealand, the panel. <laughs> I know, and it is 20, 24 minutes to five. Thank you for all the texts that are coming in. Someone's also texted, and I might add, just saying milk and soup. So clearly they've got the wrong, they've got the wrong text number, and I hope that they've realised that and that that message has got where it's going. Foodstuffs has launched its facial recognition trial in 25 North Island supermarkets. It will run for six months. Foodstuffs says there were more than 4,000 separate retail crime offences recorded between October and December 2023. They say the trial is about making their stores safer with strict procedures to respect people's privacy. Privacy Commissioner Michael Webster told Morning Report this morning they're keeping a close eye on the trial. We wanted to know more about how the technology itself actually works. Alan Robbins is a senior consultant with the Brain Box Institute specialising in AI. Alan joins us now. Kia ora, Alan. Kia ora. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I'm picturing myself at the door of a supermarket and there is this facial uh, recognition technology on me and my face is being recorded somewhere to be matched up, as I understood from conversations in the media earlier this morning, with a database of other images. Can you take us through how this works? Is it like a fingerprint for your face? Kind of, yes. So what happens is once the system detects a face in the CCTV footage, uh, it detects features like distance between your eyes, the curve of your cheekbones, the distance between your nose and your mouth, all sorts of individual discrete features of your face. It turns those into a number that's often referred to as a template or a face print, and it compares that to a database of saved templates. So it's not actually comparing it to other images. It's just a number compared to a number. And the closer the numbers are, the more that face matches. How quickly does that happen? Uh, uh, not instantly, but as close as makes no odds, basically in real time. In real time, I mean, since we're, you know, we're talking on the radio, obviously it's also going out online, but in real time seconds and real time minutes? Uh, in real time milliseconds. Milliseconds, in real time milliseconds, okay. Yeah. And so my face would have had to have been in the database in order for that match to happen. How accurate yes. is, is the technology? 
Well, it's impossible to say how accurate the system that foodstuffs is using is. Right, so we're just going bigger picture here. Understood. In general, facial recognition is pretty good. It's a technology that's been worked on for a while. It's one that tends to be pretty reliable. You know, a lot of listeners probably use it to unlock their phones. That's the same thing that'll be going on here. So when we're talking about milliseconds, what sort of percentage are we talking about when it comes to reliability? Like pretty good, what does that mean? Well, 50% of the time, 80% of the time? Most of the top systems report 90% or higher accuracy in most scenarios, especially if they get a couple of tries to scan a face, which is almost certain given that you're going to be wandering around in there for a while and your face will be picked up by the system multiple times. How does this sound to you, Ali? Mm. Any questions? Yeah, initially I went, yeah, great. You know, if you've got nothing to worry about, well, what's the problem? But then reading the story, it appears that actually um, the software shows that false matches are more likely to happen for people of colour and particularly women of colour. And I don't want to see people, you know, put in that situation, especially where it appears that it's gender and racially inaccurate from the outset. Do you think that's a fair criticism, Alan? I do think that's a fair criticism. It's a criticism you can level at basically every facial recognition system. They're limited by the data used to train them, and the data used to train them is largely of Pākehā people, certainly in Western countries, and predominantly more men. And so for people with darker skin, who modern cameras are less good at picking up anyway, uh, and for people who there is not a large number of images out there of them for these systems to train on, It's going to be worse. And so Maori people, Pacifica people, and especially Maori and Pacifica women, I would be surprised if this system was not less effective Mm. for them. Well, that's Uh, a good for me. Yeah, foodstuffs, uh, I think it's notable in their fact sheet they've put out about this. They've got a list of concerns and then facts to respond to them. One of the concerns they list is facial recognition is racially biased. And their fact to respond to that is not, we've tested our system and it's not racially biased. It's every match that the system picks up will be checked by two staff members before anything is done about it. Oh, that's nonsense. That's ridiculous. Ed, you've got your hand up. I just want to acknowledge that. Ed would like to ask you a question, (laughs) On the radio. Yes, yes. Well, what's interesting is that when you say 90% effective, I actually thought that sounded really low. When you think about how many hundreds, potentially thousands of people could go through a supermarket in a day. But one thing that I'm really interested in asking you about is what do you think the supermarkets are actually going to do about it? Susanna and I were talking about this off air because my understanding is security guards at uh, supermarkets can't do a lot. So, okay, we identify somebody's shoplifting. What do we do about it? Well, I imagine they'll do what they currently do when they identify someone who's shoplifting. Uh, whatever the process for that particular store is. I would hope it begins with uh, conversation and request to stop and not immediately escalating to forcibly ejecting them, but I imagine decisions will be made in the moment. What do you know, Alan, about the database that Foodstuffs is using? Uh, I don't know anything. As far as I'm aware, they have not released any information about the specific model they're using or the database that model may be trained on. And, you know, it's quite possible that they don't necessarily know a whole lot about the database. A lot of these facial recognition technologies you buy off the shelf from a company that has its database as 
basically trade data that they don't necessarily share with all their customers. So like a one-size-fits-all data base? Yeah, which then you feed in the people that you want it to pick up. Oh, it all sounds murky, doesn't it? And what I mean by that is I've heard that there's a description that Foodstuffs already has some images, but what you're describing is that there's a database that I would just buy off the shelf as someone who was wanting to operate facial recognition technology and then start with that. I'm still not clear on how that part works. So the database is not what you check faces against. The system is, uh, it needs to be taught basically what human faces look like, and that's what the database is for. It's trained on those images to pick up the kinds of features in human faces that will allow it to identify faces better when it's used out in the wild. How does it compare, and I just had a person in Christchurch text through, do you object to passport control? No, I don't. How does it compare to passport control? In what way? Well, um, I guess I know that's a very open question, but I'm interested just to hear what your answer is. Let's say technically. Technically, it's probably basically the same technology. I don't know if they're using the same provider, but it is the same underlying idea being used in both cases. Now, for passport control, they have a system whereby you have to stand in a certain place and they have specific lighting. So that's going to be more accurate in general. Uh, The food stuff one is going to be running, it seems, on just the cameras they have in the supermarkets. So the images are going to be less clear, Um, they're going to be less well lit and from different angles. So that's going to reduce its overall accuracy, but they do seem to be setting a higher threshold than many others for creating a match. Uh, And then that match has to be verified by two staff members looking at the pictures side by side and going, do we think that's the same person? Which, uh, from what they've said, sounds like it's kind of their process right now. They just see people and go, hang on, we think it's that person. Can well, I just good- ask how hard it would be to actually have a database that uh, that reflected our makeup as a people? I mean, how hard would it be to, to put in some information that would make this more effective? Well, um, it would be not insurmountable, but it would certainly be a sizable project. There have been efforts in the past to make more um, ethnically diverse data sets, and there are more ethnically diverse data sets out there that you can draw on, but they've largely come from America, so they tend to better Mm -hmm. reflect that ethnic makeup. For New Zealand, I'm not aware of any databases out there, certainly of, of faces that are more reflective of our makeup, but you could put one together, and I think it would be very useful for a lot of different purposes and certainly for researchers also. But it would not be a small undertaking. So would a trial? To, oh, so no, okay, sorry, just finish and then I'll ask, sorry. Well, you, you would have to ideally get permission from all of the people whose faces you wanted to use in the database. Right, so a trial of this scale wouldn't generate a, a data set, an ethnically... Uh, well, and you, yeah, an well, ethnically, a New think, Zealand profile. Yeah, I don't think you'd want a test like this to generate a database of that kind. I mean, the Privacy Commissioner's Office has given Foodstuffs advice uh, in this, and they've, they say they've made changes in response to that advice. 
uh, and certainly they are not retaining any of the images that they scan if they don't create a match in their system. Because certainly you might be discomforted by the idea of going into the supermarket and having your face scanned. I think you would be a lot more disconcerted by the idea that you would go into the supermarket, your face would be scanned, and then that would be kept in a database. Mm. Um, a lot of texts coming in, uh, Alan. What happens when people wear a COVID mask or dark glasses to the facial recognition technology? Well, Foodstuffs says that the system can deal with those kinds of things. Uh, you know, those sorts of things don't obscure the full face, and so you can get partial data on them, and sometimes that may be enough for a match. However, you know, Something that relies on a visual of the face and then scanning it and matching it to a database is going to be made less effective if you cover part of the face. That's just how things work. So I don't know if it'll be completely defeated by that. It sounds like Foodstuffs is confident it won't be, but it, it's not going to be as effective if the face is covered. And it's a trial after all, so it it, it'll be interesting to see how much information they share with us once the trial is over. We'll leave it there, Alan. Thank you very much for your time. It's Alan Thanks. Robbins, Senior Consultant with the Brainbox Institute. New research from University of Auckland suggests three times as many gay and bisexual men could donate blood if new rules were adopted. At the moment, men who have had sex with men in the last three months cannot give blood. But in the UK and Canada, anyone who hasn't had anal intercourse with a new or multiple partners can donate. The study shows if those rules were introduced in New Zealand... 10,000 more gay and bisexual men could donate blood. Joining me now is the Chief Executive of Burnett Foundation Aotearoa, Joe Rich. Kia ora, Joe. Kia ora. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on the programme today. How important is this research? Uh, it is really important because we know that for a long time many in our community have felt that the policy is not inclusive. Um, they've found that or felt that it's discriminatory. Um, and so a lot of people are really motivated to, and want to give blood. Um, it's something that you do that's good for society. It's altruistic. Um, and the current rules are a bit outdated. Tell us how the Burnett Foundation Aotearoa was involved in this latest research. Yeah, so we were a research partner. Um, and we, so we helped with um, recruiting participants into the study and we advised uh, into the study as well. Um, and we support the findings that, um, you know, that the New Zealand policy could really be liberalised, it could still maintain safety in the blood supply, um, but it could really increase the number of people from our community uh, that can donate. Ali? Yeah, I, I, it seems like a no-brainer to me. It seems the risks are very low. What are the risks related to other blood-related issues uh, at the moment? If, how is that managed and how does the risk that we're talking about here compare with, say, I don't know, hepatitis, for example? Mm. Yeah, well, all the, the blood is tested for infectious diseases. Um, and what what the deferrals are on top of that is kind of, at the next stop, because we know some infectious diseases like HIV, they have a window period. You know, if you get infected, um, it might take a, a couple of weeks or up to a month or two for it to show up on a test result. Um, so the deferral, the deferral criteria has existed um, for people that, or for populations that are considered to be at high risk of having an undi a recently acquired undiagnosed infection. Um, because there's a chance it could slip through um, the testing process. Right. Um, but what, 
what this study's done is, is said, um, well, you know, the, the current deferral is very broad. It's just saying anyone who's had sex uh, oral or anal in the last uh, three months is deferred. Um, what this is saying is it could be much more nuanced. Um, it could say, well, if you're in a monogamous relationship, you're not at high risk. Um, you're not going to have a recently acquired undiagnosed infection. Um, but, you know, it's still proposing to defer people who've had new partners in the last few months, mm. um, which is still appropriate to maintaining the safety of the blood supply, but also letting much more people donate. Yeah, I think the most important thing is targeting the behaviour rather than the minority or the demographic. Because if you think about uh, the things that uh, New Zealand Blood is trying to screen out uh, having anal or oral intercourse within a certain period, I mean, it's not just gay and bisexual men who do that. Lots of people do that, right? So I think they need to target the behaviour rather than have this kind of very blunt tool of saying, well, if you've got a particular uh, sexual preference, then you can't do it. You know, because it's really about the behaviour, not not whether you're gay or, or straight or by. Yeah, well, I mean, in fact, that's what they've done in the UK. Is they have they've made the um, the deferral gender neutral. So yeah, it's not necessarily gay men. It's anyone if you've had anal sex. I mean, the caveat I'll make to your point, which I think that's a pragmatic way of implementing it, actually. Um, but um, the reality is, you know, in New Zealand, um, gay and bi men are three hundred and fifty times more likely. Uh, to be affected by HIV than the general population. And there's lots of, you know, lots of reasons that contribute to that. Um, but there, there is a disproportionate risk. But, it's, um, but having the detailed questions about, you know, how, how recent is, is it a new partner, is it an old partner, or an old partner, and, you know, an existing, um, <laughs> a longer-term relationship, um, then, you know, you're able, that level of nuance you're able to get down to, well, is there actually risk or not, you know? Good point, yeah. Just to finish, Joe, what needs to happen for our blood screening um, settings to change? What's the next steps? So the next step, I think, is um, the New Zealand Blood Service will, rec- have rec- will, will receive this report and they need to apply to MedSafe uh, to adjust the deferral criteria because it's... Donated blood is treated as a medicine. Um, it, you know, needs a really high degree of safety. So MedSafe will be the ultimate decision maker, um, and we really hope that they receive it well. Um, they listen to the community's perspective that came through on the study, um, and they and they move swiftly. Have a good time at the launch tonight, Joe. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. The research has been launched in about an hour and a half, I understand, with everyone who's been involved with that University of Auckland research. It's coming up to seven minutes on the panel. Stay Sharp Barber is on Main Street in the rural settlement of Ikitahuna. It's where award-winning barber Nick Oliver offers his men's hair and grooming services. Nick broke a 40-year barber drought in this part of South Tararua District, but a late-night burglary a couple of weeks ago almost threatened to change all of that. Nick's on the line now from Ikitahuna. Kia ora, Nick. Kia ora, how are you? Good. How are you? What happened? Oh, yeah, getting on, eh? Um, oh, I was, um, it was a Sunday night, really. Um, woke up Monday morning. Um, early in the morning to a bunch of missed calls um, from my mum. She had actually been notified that um, the front window of my shop had been smashed and um, 
she'd come down to investigate and saw that yeah, some buggers had come in and ransacked the place and taken all my uh, my working gear and product and whatnot. So <clears throat> yeah. So you you put the notice on the socials just to say, yeah. hey, if you had an appointment, I'm really sorry, I can't cut you here right now. And how did the community respond? Yeah, so I, I contacted all my um, all my clients for that day personally, um, and uh, <clears throat> told them the news, and they were all they were all you know understanding. They didn't didn't mind that I had to cancel on them, um, and. Uh, yeah, I, I sort of turned up to the <clears throat> to the state of um, the mess and, and and things thrown about the place. But um, yeah, we sort of <clears throat> spent the morning trying to figure out you know where to go and talking to the police and that sort of thing. And um, yeah, a couple of locals stopped by um, that morning and. Offered some pretty generous donations, and and uh, yeah, that, that that was a, an absolute godsend. Really, um, we were we were stressing out, wondering how we were going to sort of cover the losses and and the damage and things like that. But um, yeah, like I say, you know, the locals, everyone knows everyone around here, and you know, all the the local business owners and things like that. They're all in the same boat. They all understand how difficult it can be, and. Yeah, a few of them came together to sort of help uh, get me back open and running again. And luckily, I was only away for two days and managed to get some stuff to to borrow some of the the uh, <clears throat> the other local barbers that are that I have and the other friends within the sort of surrounding areas were really generous and helpful and and uh, loaned some gear for me to borrow for the time being while I waited for some new stuff to turn up and. Yeah. Were you insured, Nick? No, I wasn't. I see. I um, being being self-made, pretty much. I, I sunk every cent that I had into uh, getting the place open in the first place, and was hoping that you know I'd sort of uh, be able to get insurance a little further down the track. But um, so reassessing that um, after the burglary, we we kind of. Um, yeah, we're just looking at options and and seeing what might be best, and um, you know, putting that money into savings rather than you know, putting it towards um, insurance and the possibility of this never happening again. Um, it could be you know, money wasted really in the long run. So if we put it into savings and things like that, then um, and you know, that'll that'll cover. It's, cover our behinds for, for any well, possible future problems. It's great to hear that the community came through as they have and you only lost yeah, a couple yeah. of days because after 40 years of not having a barber shop in Ikitahuna or anywhere I'm understanding in that part of the Tararua district, you really were yeah. saving the day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, it's um, it's just classic small communities, eh? Small communities like this, they all just seem to... You know, they all they all just come together in moments of need like this, and and um, it's such like good say, news. Everyone, knows, everyone yeah. knows everyone, so they all just try and work together and try and uh, do the best by one another and that sort of thing. So, uh, thank it's been, you, it's been really awesome. Good on you. Good to talk to you. Thanks so much for stopping, cutting here there for a minute to have a chat with us. No, no worries.
That's Nick Oliver. Well, it's been quite an afternoon. Thank you, Ali. We've had, uh, Andy, we've had some response, Ali, to the film, Romancing the Stone. What did I say? Jewel of the Nile. No, no, oh. Jewel of the Nile was a film, but then you were describing a poster with Michael Douglas. Oh, and, uh, and that was Romancing yes. the Stone. But then I've had quite a few texts come in, and it's split between, is it Kathleen Turner or Sybil Shepherd? Just saying, sorry, Ed, I know we're oh, having no, a bit Sybil's, of a history lesson. No, it's Sybil better than Google. Was moonlighting. No, you're right, Sybil Shepherd was moonlighting, <laughs> not Kathleen Turner, so I've got that mixed up as well. Better than Google. Well, you heard oh. it here. Thank you both, and thank you listeners, and thank you people online. That has been the panel for Thursday, the 8th of February. Checkpoint next with Lisa Owen. Kaki te anō.